Today's Bible reading is uh, chapter 50 from the book of Genesis. I'm going to start from the last verse of chapter 49 just to uh, give the context. So Genesis 49 verse 33. When Jacob had finished giving instructions to his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Joseph threw himself on his father and wept over him and kissed him. Then Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father Israel. So the physicians embalmed him, taking a full 40 days, for that was the time required for embalming. And the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. When the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court, If I have found favour in your eyes, speak to Pharaoh for me. Tell him, my father made me swear an oath and said, I am about to die. Bury me in the tomb I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go up and bury me and bury my father, and then I will return. Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear to do. So Joseph went up to bury his father. All Pharaoh's officials accompanied him, the dignitaries of his court and all the dignitaries of Egypt, besides all the members of Joseph's household and his brothers and those belonging to his father's household. Only their children and their flocks and herds were left in Goshen. Chariots and horsemen also went up with him. It was a very large company. When they reached the threshing floor of Atade near the Jordan, they lamented loudly and bitterly. And there Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father. When the Canaanites who lived there saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, the Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. That is why that place near the Jordan is called Abel Mizraim. So Jacob's sons did as he had commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which Abraham had bought along with the field as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children, also the children of Machir, son of Manasseh, 
were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110. After they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Thanks, Margaret. My name's Ollie. I'm one of the ministers of our church. Uh, it'd be great if you keep your Bible open while we work through that passage. And if you're a note taker, uh, then you'll find an outline in your handout, which might also uh, help as we work through it. But as we begin, I'm going to pray for our time, so please uh, pray with me. Gracious God, we uh, thank you for who you are, the sovereign king of all things. And we thank you for graciously revealing yourself to us in your word. And as we consider it today, may you use it to grow us in our love and appreciation of your greatness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, this week, I did something I've never, ever done before. This was the first time I'd ever done it. Uh, do you know what this thing was that I did the first time ever? I went into Subway and I ordered a sandwich. Uh, now, that might sound like a strange thing to have never, ever done before, uh, but it's because, generally speaking, I don't actually like sandwiches. I don't eat sandwiches for lunch. As, even as a kid growing up at school, I never ate sandwiches. Uh, but this week, I did have a sandwich. And so I thought I'd share with you my experience of Subway in case you've uh, never been before and would like to know as well. Uh, the first thing they do when you go in there is they want to know what kind of bread you're going to have on your sandwich. Now, you might think this would be an easy choice. I just assumed it was white bread. I assume that's what everyone eats. But actually, they've got heaps and heaps of choices. So there's white bread, uh, there's wheat bread, there's Italian herbs and cheese, there's malted rye, there's gluten-free, and a whole host of other breads. So actually, it's more of an ordeal than you might think it is to choose what bread's going to go on your sandwich. But once you've got that chosen, the most important part comes next. It's what, what you get to choose what goes inside the sandwich. And really, this is apparently what makes or breaks a sandwich. It's choosing the filling. And they have many, many options. They have this whole bench, this whole kind of uh, uh, selection there in front of you. There's all kinds of salads and vegetables, lettuce and tomato and cucumber and carrot, all sorts of vegetables. There's a vast array of sauces and dressings. There's a huge amount of cheeses there. Um, I didn't have any cheese, but most importantly, there's about 15 different kinds of meat. And so uh, that is what I loaded up on. I just loaded up on meat, meat, and meat. And the guy did look at me kind of weird when all I asked for, I said, uh, no salad, no vegetables, no cheese, no sauces, just put meat on it. And so he, um, he looked at me a little bit weird, but that was my experience of Subway. And I must admit, it was a pretty good sandwich. But uh, the question is, you might be wondering, well, what do sandwiches and Subway have to do with the Scripture? Well, it's because often what we find in Scripture is a sandwich construction. We see the start and the end, but just like with a sandwich, what matters the most is the middle, what's in between. And that's what we see in our passage today. It's, in a sense, it's a Bible sandwich. It's got bread on one side and bread on the other side, but what matters the most is what's in the middle. Because what we see in Genesis 50 is death on one side, life in the middle and death on the other side. It starts with the burial of Jacob 
It then goes on to the life of Joseph, and then it ends again with the death of Joseph. Death, life, death. But what's key to the passage is just like a sandwich. It's the center, it's the filling, it's what's in the middle. And what we find in this Bible sandwich in Genesis 50 is really the key to living life well in a world that's so difficult. See, a Subway sandwich might fill me up for one meal, but then I get hungry again. It doesn't satisfy. But with this sandwich that we find in Genesis 50, it equips me for life. Because what we find is it is Joseph's key to life, how he was able to not just survive, but how he was able to thrive in all that happened to him. As he was sold into slavery, as he was falsely accused, as he was put in jail, as he was forgotten for years. Somehow, Joseph was able to not just survive, but to thrive. How? Well, our Bible sandwich today tells us how he was able to do that. And actually, therefore, what it enables for us is it helps make sure that we don't just survive in life, but that we thrive in life as well. And so uh, let's get into our first bit of bread is about the burial. So remember, Jacob has just died the week before uh, our passage last week in Genesis 49, and now Joseph weeps over him. And what we see here is the, the deep love that Joseph has for his father. And he then gets the Egyptian physicians to embalm Uh, Jacob's body. Now, embalming was a process where they kind of removed off all of the moisture out of the body to prevent it from uh, rotting away as quickly. And actually, interestingly, in the Bible, there's only two cases of people being embalmed, and they're both in our passage today. Uh, Jacob here and Joseph at the end. And this process takes 40 days, and the Egyptians mourn for Jacob for 70 days. Now, we might wonder why they're mourning for this kind of random guy that's not even Egyptian, but it shows us just how highly regarded Joseph was. Uh, He'd saved them from certain death, and so he would have been this legendary figure there. And so his father would have been revered because of that. But what I really love about it is at this moment, at the end of Genesis, where this great patriarch dies, the Gentile nations mourn. And it shows us, even from the beginning, from the first book of the Bible, that God's kingdom has wider reaches, wider influence than just those who are physical descendants of Abraham. I don't really like that. It's such a great uh, reminder, even in such a small thing. But as the, after the mourning period ends, uh, Joseph goes and asks Pharaoh for permission to go and bury Jacob in the promised land, just like he promised he would in chapter 47. And not only does Pharaoh allow it, He actually sends a huge procession with Joseph to do it. There's dignitaries, and there's chariots, and there's horses. And in fact, it's so big that the Canaanites who are living in the promised land look at that and realize that someone important has died. And then we get to the actual burial itself. Have a look at verses 12 and 13. So Jacob's sons did as he had commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah, near Mamre, which Abraham had, brought, had bought along with the field as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite. So Jacob's put to rest in the promised land that God had given him. And then Joseph and the others go back to Egypt. And so that's slice one about death and burial. And we jump to slice two, which is also about death and burial. We'll pick up again at verse 22. 
where we're told that Joseph stayed in Egypt with all of Jacob's family. Now, he lived till he was 110, and he saw many grandkids and great-grandkids. Then, before he died, he did, in a sense, exactly what Jacob did. He made his family take an oath. And now, our translations probably have brothers there, and it could be that, but the Hebrew word literally can just mean blood relative. So it could be his literal brothers that he makes take an oath, or it could be their, their kids, his blood relatives. And this is what he says to them. Have a look at verses 24 and 25. Then Joseph said to his brothers, or to his blood relatives, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on earth to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. He basically says exactly what Jacob said, God will save you and God will take you home, and when he does... Take my bones with you. See, even Joseph, who'd spent almost his whole life living in Egypt, realizes that this is not his home, that he belongs elsewhere. And have you ever thought about just how strange that is? Joseph spent almost a century living in Egypt, and yet he sees it as not his home. Imagine if you were born in Iceland, and then you moved here to Australia at the age of 10. You lived until you were 95 enjoying life here in Australia, enjoying the beaches, enjoying the food, enjoying the weather, enjoying the people, enjoying all of that for 80 plus years. And then just before you died, you said, actually, my home is Iceland. Like, it's just such a strange thing to do. You'd feel like, if that was you, that Australia is your home, because it is your home. And we look at Joseph, and we should, in a sense, expect that he'd feel like Egypt is his home. He spent almost 100 years there, and yet, he realizes that Egypt is not his home. His home is the land that God has promised him. And then we're simply told that Joseph died and he was embalmed and he was put in a coffin. And so that's our two slices of bread, both about burial and about death. And there's such an encouragement to us as we look at it to see how these men of God have such faith in God, even to the point of death. Even as they're dying, they know that God is faithful and God will keep his promises. But have you ever realized in life how it's often at times of death that we learn the most about life? When we have a near-death experience ourselves, or when we lose a loved one, or when we're at a funeral, it forces us to think about the deeper things in life about what actually matters in life, about what's lasting and what's important. And here, in between these two stories of death, we find out about what matters in life, the key to life, and that's the centre of our sandwich. And so then, I jump back with me to verse 15. When Joseph's brothers realise that their dad, or see that their dad is dead, they panic. Uh, with him out of the picture, they're scared that Joseph is now going to take it out on them. He's now going to even the score. And actually, I think this says more about them than it does about Joseph, because it shows what they would have done if the shoe was on the other foot. If the shoe was on the other foot, this would have been their chance to get back. And they know they would have got back if they were Joseph. And so they kind of assume that that's what Joseph's going to do to them. And don't you find that so often the case? Uh, We know what we're like in our heart, 
And so we assume the same of others. Uh, Hence why Philippians tells us to think of others as better than ourselves, because we know just how sinful our own hearts are. But this leads them to come up with this uh, ridiculous plan. It's probably a con. Uh, It's possible that Jacob said this, but probably didn't. Um, We'll have a look at verse 16. So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. Surprise, surprise. Isn't it extraordinarily fortunate for them that that's what Jacob said just before he died? Continuing, verse 17. This is what you say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. I mean, isn't that handy? Isn't that kind of their dear old dad to make sure that he leaves that message for them just before he dies? I mean, it's obviously a con, it's a concoction. It's a laughably pathetic response to all that's happened in the lead up. And Joseph knows that. And he's saddened that they feel the need to come up with such a pathetic, ridiculous story. See, they haven't realized that he has genuinely forgiven them already, that he doesn't hold a grudge against them. Which in itself is truly amazing. I mean, just pause and think about it for a minute. We know the story, so it's easy to kind of lose the weight of it, but just think about it. This is no small thing that they did to him. This is not the usual sibling bickering. Uh, This isn't a case of your sibling using all the hot water in the shower. This isn't your sibling eating your leftovers from the fridge. This is human trafficking. They literally tied him up and they sold him into slavery to be taken away in their mind, never to be seen again. I mean, that's one of the worst things you could do to someone, leave alone the fact that this is their own flesh and blood. It's terrible. And yet, he's able to genuinely forgive them. How is that possible? It's because Joseph could see God's hidden hand at work. He saw and he understood that behind the scenes, God was working. And in fact, that God is sovereign over all situations, both good and bad. And that's why we get what he says in verses 19 to 20. And in many ways, I think they're the key to understanding the whole story of Joseph. I have a look at it, verses 19 and 20. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So he knows that he's not God and that justice belongs in God's hands. And even more than that, he sees that God has worked miraculously through such an evil and wicked thing to bring about good. I mean, this is one of the most amazing ideas in the whole of the Bible, that God is so sovereignly good that he can use something that someone intends for evil and bring about good from it. And the brother certainly intended it for evil here. There was no other motivation. It was pure, self-serving evil. They were jealous of Joseph. They didn't like Joseph. They saw a chance to profit from Joseph's demise. And so they took it. And that is evil. There's no two ways about it. And yet, God is so sovereignly good that he can take such a great, wicked act like that and bring about good the saving of many lives in Egypt. And knowing this and understanding this is really the key to life. That's what kept Joseph going through all that happened to him, through all those years. That was what enabled him to forgive. 
because he knew that God had used that act to bring about great good. And if we want to not just survive in life, but if we want to thrive in life, then we need to know this. We need to know that God is so good that he can bring about good from the evil and the suffering that happens in our lives, from the injustices. Because when we look around at the world, that is what we see. We see a, whoops, sorry, we see a world of tragedies and injustices. That's good. No one's going to be sleeping now, so everyone's awake, which is good. But we do see a world of tragedies and injustices, don't we? That's, the, that's what the world is filled with. Uh, recently, I heard the story about the Aberfan disaster. I don't know if you've heard of that. It was a landslide that happened in 1966. Uh, the kids in a local school were just settling into first lesson of the day when the landslide hit. And sadly, 116 kids were killed and 28 teachers. I mean, it was a terrible situation. Our hearts break for the families and those involved. Innocent people just killed. But actually, a clergyman was asked by the BBC not long after that about God's part in that tragedy. And do you know what he said? He said this, I suppose we have to admit that this is one of those occasions where the Almighty made a mistake. Now, of course, our hearts break for those involved in that situation, but how far off the truth of the Bible is that statement, God made a mistake God does not make mistakes. He did not make a mistake there, just like he did not make a mistake with Joseph. We might not know how, we might not know what it is, but what this verse shows us here is that God did not make a mistake there, that somehow God is able to bring good even from such an evil situation. See, God did not make a mistake there. He does not, did not make a mistake with Joseph. And he does not make mistakes in our lives. That's the promise. That's the hope we have of Genesis 50, verse 20. I was chatting to a friend recently. I hadn't seen him in almost 10 years. And he was telling me about, sadly, how his wife had left him. And it was obviously an extremely difficult situation for him to be in. And uh, he was wrestling with it for a long time about how God could bring about good from that terrible situation. But... Do you know what he told me? A few years later, he had another friend whose wife also left him, was in a similar situation, and my friend was able to use his experience and what he'd gone through to comfort and to care for his friend, for this other guy. And he told me how he was just so thankful that God was able to bring about some kind of good from that evil situation. And don't you find that's often the case when we suffer and when we go through difficulties? Actually, it softens our heart to be able to care for others when they're going through difficult situations. See, this is the wonderful hope of Genesis 50, verse 20. God can and does bring good from evil. But maybe you're sitting there and thinking that uh, surely the evil you've experienced could never bring about any sort of good. And I understand that, and sometimes it is hard to see how God could be bringing good out of so much evil. And so, if that is what you're feeling, then uh, firstly, I'm sorry for the evil and the suffering you've experienced. And it's often caused by the sin of others. But do rest assured that God will hold them to account. And it's not our place to judge, but God is the judge, and God will bring justice. But you can also rest assured in knowing that God will somehow bring good from the situation you're in. We might not know how or what, 
But that is what he does. I mean, some Christians do try and comfort themselves by trying to figure out what specifically the good might be or making up what the good possibly could be. And perhaps that's good to do sometimes, but I think what we can do is simply trust our good God, that he can and will bring good out of evil. Uh, Good that we may not actually understand on this side of heaven, on this side of eternity, but he can and will bring good somehow. And I think the way we see that above everything else is in Jesus. We saw that in the kids' talk. But what we see, I think, is the, is the ultimate fulfillment of this promise here. See, in Genesis, God used a great act of wickedness, Joseph being sold into slavery, to bring about a great good, the salvation, of, salvation from starvation of many Egyptians. But in Jesus, God used the greatest act of evil that has ever been done, to bring about the greatest act of good that has ever been done. See, on the cross, we see the greatest act of wickedness ever done, the innocent, blameless Son of God, brutally slaughtered. And not just by those who are physically nailing in the the nails, but by those standing around watching as well, as they watched an innocent man die. But even by us, because in a sense, it was our sin that held him there. See, truly no greater act of wickedness and evil has ever been committed than the murder of God's Son. And yet, what did God do through it? Well, He brought about the greatest act of good that has ever been done, the salvation of countless, of countless souls. Uh, Do you know how many Christians there are in the world today? Apparently around 2.4 billion, just in the world today. And that's leaving aside the last 2,000 years, and that's leaving aside all those who belong to God before Jesus. See, it's a number beyond counting. And yet God saved them all, billions of people, through the death of Jesus. And He didn't just save us from physical starvation and physical death, but from spiritual starvation and spiritual death. And the best bit is, if we want that salvation, that life, then all we simply need to do is accept the gift We don't work, we don't earn it, we simply accept God's gracious gift. I wonder, have you accepted it? But the cross is the key, fulfillment of God's promise here, of using great evil to bring about great good. And if you can bring good from the worst, most evil act that's ever happened, then he can certainly bring good from the suffering in your life. And that's why the feeling here in this sandwich of Genesis 50, that center bit, that's why it is the key. It's the key to understanding Genesis 50. It's the key to understanding all of Genesis. Actually, it's the key to understanding all of life. If we want to not just survive, but thrive, then we need to know this. But you might be thinking, well, God can bring about good from evil, but how do I know He's always going to do that? Maybe he can just do it sometimes and does do it sometimes. But how do I know that he's always going to do it? And it's a good question. And to answer that, I actually want to look at a second sandwich, a second Bible sandwich, this one in the New Testament. And even though in these two sandwiches, the bread is different. This time we get, instead of white bread, maybe we get whole grain or something. Even though the bread on the outside is different, the filling on the inside is the same on both. 
The second sandwich is Romans 8, chapter 28. Now, uh, that was our memory text from a couple of months ago, so I'm sure you don't even need to flip in your Bible. I'm sure it's in your head. I'm sure you can remember it all. You don't need to flip, but maybe we'll flip. We'll all flip for the sake of the guests who are here. So for their sake, uh, let's flip to Romans chapter 8, uh, verse 28. While in Genesis 50, the two slices on the outside about death and burial, uh, what we see in in Romans 8 is the two slices on the outside are about our identity. Uh, The ESV captures the Greek sentence structure better than NIV. Uh, This is what it says. It starts by saying, And we know that for those who love God, that's one slice, those who love God. And then it ends with this, For those who are called according to his purpose. Slice one and slice two, both about identity. Those who love God, slice one. Those who are called according to God's purpose, slice two. See, in other words, this is Christians that Paul is talking about. Uh, This is Christians, this is us. And what does he say for us? Well, the filling in the middle, it says this. All things work together for good. All things. Let's put that together, the whole verse. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Do you see how similar that is to Genesis 50? That's the same feeling in the middle. Genesis 50 makes clear that God can work from evil to bring about good. And then Romans 8 tells us that God is bringing about our good in all things to be shaped into the image of his son. It's the same principle. And what that actually does is it frees us from luck and from chance. See, we don't have coincidences. We don't have random events. We don't have meaningless flukes. All things happen according to God's purposes for our good. And that gives great comfort. Uh, We might often say something like, well, in God's sovereignty, I missed being in that car accident. In God's sovereignty, the car missed me. I wasn't in the accident. But actually, according to our two great Bible sandwiches, we could actually say something like this. Well, in God's providence, I was in the car accident and I was left a quadriplegic. That's what it enables us to say. Because we know that somehow we might not know what, we might not know how, but we have the promise that somehow God is working through all things, including that, to bring about our good And knowing that enables us to not just survive in life, but to thrive in life. And so that's our two sandwiches, filled with the same great news, the same great feeling. And as we bite into it, uh, we should be comforted by that. And we can rest in its warm goodness. I'm sure that we can all think of uh, comfort foods that we have, foods that when we eat them, they make us feel, they remind us of home or they give us that great sense of comfort. Uh, for me, it was my dad's uh, chips he used to cook when growing up. They're just a great comfort food that really just make me feel happy. Well, in a sense, what we've got here is the greatest comfort food there is, a comfort food that provides comfort above all other comforts. And so when we savour the flavour of these Bible sandwiches, we see just who God is and what God is like And knowing that will help us to not just survive, but to thrive, even when things are going badly, especially when things are going badly. 
Uh, when I was a kid, I heard the story of a family called the Staines family, and it was so powerful that it stayed with me for, I don't know what, 25 years. Uh, Graham and his wife Gladys, they were missionaries in India, and uh, with their two sons and their one daughter. And they were doing good work in India for God, though they were facing uh, pushback and resistance. But one day, a mob of angry locals trapped Graham and his two sons in the car, and they uh, set the car on fire, and they killed Graham and his two sons. Imagine being his wife. Imagine losing your husband and your two sons. I mean, it's hard to think of something worse than that. It's hard to think of a, a worse situation you could be in than that. It's hard to think of a worse thing someone could do to you than kill your, your family. And so I'm sure she wrestled with the thought of, God, what good could you possibly be bringing about from such an evil and a wicked act? But you know what Gladys did? She forgave them. And she said that publicly. And she actually pushed for leniency in their sentencing. And many of the locals couldn't believe this. They, they couldn't believe how someone could possibly show such mercy in the face of such wickedness. Yet she did. And that actually intrigued them. And it actually ended up opening many doors there for gospel conversations. It actually opened many doors as people tried to explore and find out what could possibly drive her to be willing to forgive like that. And actually it led to a huge growth in the number of Christians. And praise God for that. Isn't that an incredible example of God bringing about great good, the salvation of many souls as they heard the gospel and were saved from such a genuinely wicked thing? See, God can work through everything, both big and small, evil and suffering, to bring about good. That is the promise we have of Genesis 50. And so today, be encouraged, be comforted. If and when you're going through tough times, then feast well on the comfort food of Genesis 50. See, it doesn't mean that the suffering isn't difficult. Of course it's difficult. I'm sure spending years in slavery and in jail was difficult for Joseph. I'm sure it was. I'm sure losing a husband and losing your two sons was difficult for Gladys. Of course it is. And I'm sure the things we go through are difficult. It doesn't mean they're not difficult. Of course they are. But God is so good that he can bring about good even from those that, things that are difficult. So no matter where you find yourself, no matter what you're going through in life, you can rest assured that God is working in your life through those events to achieve his purposes. And that really is the greatest comfort food there is. I'm going to pray and thank God for that, so please um, pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are so good and you are so powerful you are so sovereign that you can bring about good even from evil. And we thank you for how we saw it here with Joseph. We thank you even more for how we see it on the cross, the greatest act of wicked ever done that brings about the greatest act of good ever done. And when we go through tough times, we do confess we find it so difficult, uh, so hard. Would you comfort us when we are? For those who are going through it right now, would you comfort us? Uh, for the rest of us, when we go through it, would you comfort us? And would you particularly remind us and comfort us by pointing us towards this passage, the hope of these two Bible sandwiches, that you are so good that you will somehow use that for our good. We might not know what, we might not know how until we get to heaven, but somehow we know that you will use it for good. And may you give us great comfort in that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.